uh, the last few weeks. And uh, we've seen in the Psalms that really does cover uh, the full palette of human emotion. And tonight uh, we will look at the emotion of envy. Uh, So let's pray together. Uh, Father, we uh, need your word. We need your grace. We need your spirit. Uh, We are poor. We do have hearts of stone naturally. Uh, And so, Lord, we need uh, you uh, to affect us, affect us emotionally, that we uh, might say with the psalmist here in Psalm 73 that we, too, are pure in heart. Uh, Do this for your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, tonight we are going to talk about envy, Uh, and if you want to talk about envy constructively, uh, you need to talk from the Bible, and you need to talk from Toy Story. Uh, Toy Story, classic. Um, It it was May 1995. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, That was 25 years ago, uh, which makes me feel ancient. Uh, I remember when it came out, and uh, if if you've not seen it, let me just give you a synopsis. Uh, In Toy Story, there's a little boy named Andy. And when Andy's around, his toys are normal toys. But when he's not around, uh, the toys come to life. Uh, And the lead toy, the one that uh, holds the prominent place in Andy's heart and amongst all the rest of the toys is Woody. Uh, Woody is this homely cowboy. And uh, to show his place of prominence, he's usually placed there in the center of the bed. And he gets displaced by a new toy. That toy being Buzz or Buzz Lightyear. Um, And Buzz is very different from Woody. Uh, Buzz has a space suit. Buzz is a space ranger. He has a laser. He has wings. He can fly. He has lots of buttons. So it's only predictable how Woody sees this new toy, how he responds. And he's very envious. See, Buzz really is the polar opposite of Woody. He doesn't, Buzz doesn't even think he's a toy. For him to be a toy, that's beneath how he sees himself. He's not made to entertain children. He's made to explore the universe to infinity and... See, you remember. That's very different from Woody. Woody's life mission is to make Andy happy. And so the envy for Woody grows and grows. And it grows so much that he begins to act out of character. And as you see the plot develop, you do see that as they go on these adventures together, spoiler alert, they actually become friends. The best of friends. And I just did a little bit of research, and uh, people who really care about this stuff, uh, many of them uh, put... Toy Story 1 as one of the most critically acclaimed of all Disney movies. Why is that? Well, I think because it hits at something that we all experience in very profound ways. How we experience envy. And envy is corrosive. Corrosive. This week, uh, Brooks has been real into um, Komodo dragons lately and... uh, so we get on, we put YouTube there on the TV and uh, look up Komodo dragons. And uh, we, so, you know, some of the videos are like two minutes. I didn't want a two-minute video, but I also didn't want a 22-minute video of Komodo dragons. I'm interested, not that interested. So I find one that's right there at the sweet spot around eight minutes. And um, it's about how Komodo dragons have venom. And they, uh, to show how Komodo dragons venom works, they extract it. They put it into a syringe And then they inject that venom into a ribeye steak. 
They put the ribeye steak with Komodo dragon venom here, and they put just a regular ribeye steak with no Komodo dragon venom in it here. They let them sit for three days. Now, I would have thought if you let red meat sit out for three days, you definitely shouldn't eat it. But uh, if you let it sit out for three days, it really doesn't look that much different. But if you put Komodo dragon venom into a ribeye steak and you let it sit for three days, it inflates into this brownish, blackish piece of filth. It's disgusting, nasty. But that's what envy does. What Komodo dragon venom does to its victims is what envy does to the human heart. But who wants that? Really? Well, the beautiful thing about the Psalms is that when it addresses emotions, it just doesn't address things that we consider to be positive emotion. It also addresses things that we consider to be negative emotions, things like loneliness, things like sadness and fear, and yes, even the bitterness that comes from intense envy. And that's what we see in Psalm 73 uh, here tonight. So let's um, start. I'm going to do this a little differently. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read a few verses, talk, read a few verses, talk, read a few verses, talk, okay? So I need you to get the Bibles out in your phones. Um, I would also love if you put that thing into airplane mode for the next few minutes. And um, it'll be on the screen too, but uh, some of these slides have a lot more verses in them. And I'm going to ask you to look down at your passage a bunch, okay? So let's read, I'm going to read the first three uh, to get us started. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For, why? Why did he almost slip? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. All right, so the psalmist here is looking back at a time in his past. He's learned something from his past. He's had some firsthand experience, and he's become pure in heart. He talks about, in the past, about how he almost fell because of his envy. And what was he envious of? You see it in verse 3? He was envious of the prosperity of the wicked. All right, so let's see what the prosperity of the wicked looked like. Start in verse 4. We're going to read through verse 14. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So do you see the prosperity of the wicked? All right, I want you to look here. We'll go to a few places here. Let's see what the the wicked who are living the good life, let's see how it's described. Look at verse 4. It says they have no pain. Verse 5 says they have no pain. 
Verse four and verse seven says they're richly fed. Verse five says they're trouble free. Verse 12 says they have an easy life. Verse 12 says that they are rich. Sounds like a good life, doesn't it? And if they're living the blessed life, then they must be good upstanding people, right? I mean, that's, a, that's our common sense logic theology, but it's not true. You see how the psalmist describes them. Look at verse six. The verse six says they're prideful. Verse six says they're violent. Verse seven says they're full of folly. Verses eight and nine says they're scoffing. Verse eight says they threaten oppression. But if you're good, means that you deserve blessing. And if you're bad, means that you deserve cursing. If that's your line of thinking, then the psalmist is in a real predicament here. The psalmist doesn't know how to make sense of this. Any more than Woody knew how to make sense out of how Buzz couldn't see of what a privilege it was to be considered Andy's favorite toy. Maybe that kind of logic works for you too. What has made you envious? What is it that someone else has that you wish that you did? I think for a lot of us, it's around our bodies. We want your hair. We want your height. We want your complexion. We want to look like you do in a pair of jeans. We want to have the same muscle tone as you. We go on and on, couldn't we? But we begin to make judgments about ourselves and others based on these standards. And these standards aren't just horizontal between me and you but there are standards that become vertical about how we measure up and we become better or worse, not just different. And what makes all this worse is the whole industry that tries to sell you things focused on your flaws. And the only way you can fix your flaws is to buy their product. Envy, bodies, it's correlation. Maybe it's around children. Somewhere between one in six to one in eight couples struggle with infertility. And those numbers just grow as people get older. And if that's you, you see other people get pregnant without much time. You see other people get pregnant accidentally. And you're just incensed with envy. It goes the other way too. Some of us with kids, we envy those of you without kids because we want your freedom. Maybe envy for you is around a spouse. You have this desire to be married, yet you're unable to for whatever reason. And it's a really heavy burden. It's something that really should be lamented. But that turns into envy. And you know it's turned into envy when you are bitter at the ones who are beating you to the altar. Now, it's perfectly understandable for that to sting a bit. But if it causes you to portray others in a negative light, perhaps you've moved into envy. Maybe it's your personality. You just wish you could be carefree. You just wish that you were wound a little more tight so you could be a little more precise, a little more clean. You wish that you could, you could blow up a room in a social setting. You wish you were witty. You wish you were warm. Then your life would be perfect. Or maybe this was me yesterday. I just wish I had a pool yesterday. And if you had a pool, I was real envious of you yesterday. 
But here's where things get really dark with envy. We not only want what you have, but we begin to build a case why you don't deserve what you have. See, many times we should be thankful for those who are experiencing marriage or experiencing babies, but we're not. We're the pool. And we replace the gratitude that's due God for working in your life for bitterness. And we begin to make a story of why we deserve the blessing you're experiencing and why we aren't. But maybe, just maybe, maybe the psalmist is right. Maybe, uh, maybe the, 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 the person that they envy really is as wicked as they say they are. Maybe they really are full of folly and pride and violence. Maybe you haven't created a false narrative. Maybe it's true. Well, look what the psalmist does in verse 15. We'll start in verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Isn't it wearisome? Try to figure out if you're right or not. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. See, up to this point, up to verse 17, the psalmist only has in view himself and other people. But starting in verse 17, his reality gets much more accurate when God is also included into his reality. Light has broken. The psalmist turns to God. He enters the sanctuary and the burden of him having to determine whether or not the object of his envy is actually due God's wrath fades away like a mist. He begins to see that it's God's job to make those calls. You just see him by the time you get to verse 22. He's lighter. He realizes how envy has made him tired, verse 16. Bitter, verse 21. And brutish and ignorant in verse 22. But what seeing God's wrath does not only lifts the burden of having to make judgments about others, it also forces you to see the darkness in your own soul. Now the psalmist sees himself as a beast. He sees that his envy is totally uncalled for. Things have changed for the psalmist, haven't they? He's been emptied of his envy. He's been empty of his anger. The sickness has been dispelled, but something good must now come in and take envy's place. And that's what we see, verse 23 through 28. We see how God fills the previously envious person. Let's read those together. Verse 23, nevertheless... I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire beside you. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it's good to be near God. 
I've made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. There's a lot there. A lot there in those six verses, but really what I want you to see is what's not there. The psalmist does not squash his desire. That's what a Stoic would do. It's what a Buddhist would do. But it's impossible. Yes, it's even inhumane to squash your desire because what God made us as is desirous creatures. You see the psalmist's desires in verses 4 to 14. What he really wants out of life is he wants life to be easy, really easy. But now, once you get to verses 23 to 28, he doesn't want an easy life anymore. Verse 25 says that he wants God. There's nothing on earth that he desires besides you, God. He realizes that having God is better than having an easy life. Think about the thing that you want. Maybe it came to mind that list that I had. Maybe it's just kind of come up throughout the last several minutes. And it's very likely that what you want is a good thing. For instance, if you really want children, the Bible affirms that. The first commandment in all the scriptures is be fruitful and multiply. Psalm 127 says that children are heritage from the Lord. So children are a good thing. Maybe the thing that you want more than anything is a spouse. The Bible affirms that too. The Bible says it's not good for man or woman to be alone. The Bible uses marriage as one of his chief metaphors to show the covenant that God has with his people by comparing it to the marriage that a man and a woman has. Maybe the thing you want more than anything else, you just want recognition at work. You've been working really hard. COVID has kicked things into overdrive for you and you just want somebody to say thanks. That's an okay thing. Hard work is a good thing according to the scriptures. See, here's what Psalm 73 calls all of us to do. It calls us to identify our desire and identify it as right and good. And then Psalm 73 calls us to see how our desire has gone off the tracks. And when we do, repent. But it goes further. Then it calls us to replace our exaggerated desire with God himself. But how do you do that? Well, it all starts in verse 23 and 24. It all starts by seeing how desirous God is for you. Verse 23 says that God is always with us. says that he holds our right hand. It says that he guides us. He says that God wants to receive us into glory. See, do you see what God does with envious people? He chases them down. He lures them into the sanctuary. He shows them that he's going to take care of evil people as a just judge. He's going to reveal the envy in our bitter hearts. He's going to invite us to drink at the wells of his grace. Isn't that amazing? See, brother and sister, all of us, we want to be protected, surrounded, and pursued. And God's done that. He's done it in Jesus. Jesus was sent into the world to chase us down when we were off the rails in our envy. He died for us as envious people who've given him 10,000 reasons to give up on us. 
He rose again from the dead to show that he's more powerful than our envy. And now he sends his spirit to show us when we fall back into our envious ways to show us that we are still his daughter and we're still his son. See, the one who knows your failures loves you. And he wants you to be satisfied at a heart level so that you can pray that last verse. So that you can pray, but for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of your works. Let's pray. Father, show us just what good news it is uh, that you have pursued us in Jesus. That you are at, we are at your right hand. That you guide us. And that we're with you. Christ's name, amen.